We are in John chapter 4 this morning, beginning this uh, wonderful story that occurs only in John's Gospel of the encounter of Jesus with this uh, Samaritan woman at the well, Jacob's well there. And uh, it's difficult to know how to break up a text like this because the story is sort of a unit, but I'm going to go through the first 14 verses this morning and then, Lord willing, next week down through verse 26, and then we'll see from there where we go. Um, There's an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits and uh, printed and audio messages on the church website. Therefore, when the Lord knew, or some versions read Jesus knew, it's a difficult textual variant there, Uh, that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew... Ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, uh, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. One of the wonderful things about the good news that uh, Jesus brings us is that it meets the basic needs of all people everywhere in all times in every culture, uh, the basic need that people have. You can go to the highest halls of learning and talk to a guy who's got multiple PhDs and he needs the same message that we have to give, that is that Christ died for his sins, that he was risen from the dead, and that by believing in Jesus Christ he can have eternal life as a free gift. You can go to the most remote and uh, primitive jungle situation on the face of the globe and talk to an illiterate tribesman and uh, he has the same need 
and the same good news will uh, bring him to eternal life if he responds, and that is that all people have the same need because we're all sinners. And Jesus came to save sinners who believe in him. And so wherever it is across the board, no matter what, uh, the same gospel applies to the same people. Now, sometimes you have to change the approach that you take with the gospel. We've seen that in John chapter 3. We saw Jesus talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And as a religious leader and as a very moral man, no doubt, I'm sure that he was shocked by Jesus' opening line to him that we saw in John 3, 3, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus would have been undone, thinking, What? All my religion is worth nothing? Exactly. It is not. Uh, He needed the new birth. Now in John chapter 4, we encounter a very different situation as as Jesus talks to this immoral Samaritan woman here at Jacob's well. And Jesus skillfully shows her that she needs the living water that only he can give. It's the same basic message as the new birth, but a different context and a very different situation. The contrast between Nicodemus and this woman at the well Uh, almost could not be greater. Uh, He was a Jewish man. She, a Samaritan woman. Uh, He was educated and orthodox in the Jewish faith. She was uneducated and heterodox. That is, she did not believe the tenets of Judaism. He was an influential leader. As far as we know, she was a nobody in terms of any social influence. Uh, He was upper middle class. She was lower class. He was morally upright and proud of it. She was immoral and probably ashamed of that. He sought out Jesus because he thought highly of him as a respected teacher and rabbi and so on. She had no idea who this stranger at the well was who was seeking her out. Um... He came to Jesus at night. She and Jesus met at high noon. Nicodemus responded slowly and rationally. Uh, This woman responded rather quickly and emotionally. But it's a beautiful situation because Jesus loved both of these very different people and it shows us how he came to seek and to save all who are lost, which is all people, all types of people. Now, Back in 2010, I did two messages out of John 4 on how Jesus teaches us to witness. And uh, I was tempted to just repeat those, and then I thought, no, I'm going to take a different tack. So I'm going to work through the the text just uh, section by section, as I mentioned, and you can access those messages if you would like a refresher on what I said then. But in our text for today, verses 1 to 14, the lesson that we have is that Jesus is the Savior who can give living water to all thirsty sinners. John gives us a little background in verses uh, 1 through 3. Why Jesus left Judea and went north into Galilee, namely to avoid any conflict with the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were closely monitoring the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, and they were worried. And now Jesus' ministry seems to be surging ahead in terms of numbers over John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus, as you know, was never one to avoid controversy or conflict with the Pharisees. But I think he knew, as it's a theme all through John, his hour had not yet come. It was not yet time for this confrontation. And so he leaves, and the word that is used for left there in uh, verse 3 is the word that means abandon. It's used in verse 26 of the woman, or or verse 27, uh, excuse me, verse 28. The woman left her water pot and uh, went back into the city. So Jesus basically abandons Judea in the south and goes north, and the bulk of his remaining ministry until that final week when he makes his way back to Jerusalem was there in the north. Verse 2 clarifies that Jesus was not actually doing the baptizing, but his disciples were. Uh, As we've seen, the baptism that they were doing was similar to John the Baptist, where they were baptizing people who confessed their sins, repented of their sins, wanted forgiveness from God. Uh, It was baptism for the Jewish people. Um, Godet points out, he says, By baptizing, he, Jesus, attested the unity of his work with that of the forerunner. By not himself baptizing, he made the superiority of his position above that of John the Baptist to be felt. I think there may also be another reason that Jesus didn't baptize, and that is, can you imagine the pride that some later would have had to say, I was baptized by none other than Jesus. You know, and people would have gone around boasting in that. And uh, so the Lord did not baptize any. He let the disciples do the actual dunking and uh, as we've seen I think they were uh, baptizing by immersion because there was much water in that place now three main lessons then with that background that we can draw from our text the first one is a wonderful message and that is that Jesus seeks sinners who aren't even seeking him thank God for that verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria Now, Samaria was the shortest route from Judea, Jerusalem in the south, going north up to Galilee. Um, Most Jews used it, but there were some strict Jews who did not want to defile themselves with the Samaritans. And this is in the day, of course, before rapid transit or automobiles and paved roads. They would actually walk east, cross the Jordan River, go north, and then cut back into Galilee to avoid the Samaritans. Jesus, as you know, was over by the Jordan River baptizing, so he was already east. He easily could have gone north and then cut back into Galilee, but it says he had to go through Samaria. And John uses the the Greek phrase there that's translated had to uh, at least five times in his gospel for Jesus' divine mission. Uh, He was on target with what the Father gave him to do. And so I think there is that uh, nuance here that Jesus knew he had a divine appointment in Samaria 
And so he comes from the Jordan up to Jerusalem, then goes north, and he is at Jacob's well here in this situation. The village of Sychar was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, about halfway between Jerusalem and Nazareth. It's at the base of Mount Gerizim, which was the Samaritan holy uh, mountain, um, much as uh, Zion was Jerusalem's holy mountain. Jacob's well was about a half mile from the village, and John mentions Jesus is weary from his journey. He's sitting at the well at about the sixth hour. The disciples had gone in to buy some lunch there, some food. Um, From where Jesus had been baptizing by the road up to Sychar was about 40 miles. And so it would make sense they had traveled a full day walking, spent the night somewhere, and now a half day gets them to this village, but they're very tired. Um, It's about noon, as I said, the sixth hour. Now, some scholars, to avoid a chronological problem that we're going to encounter in John 19 at the crucifixion, Uh, argue that John is using Roman time, which began at midnight, and so the sixth hour would be 6 p.m. here. Uh, We'll have to wrestle with that chronological problem when we get to John 19, but most scholars say there is very scant evidence that John would have been following Roman time. And so I think we have to say it was noon, it was hot, um, and Jesus is weary. The Jews and Samaritans, as verse 9 mentions, uh, were antagonistic to one another, and that had gone back for centuries. Back in 722 B.C., the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, taken most of the Jews captive uh, back to Assyria, and had flooded uh, Assyrians and other foreigners into the northern kingdom. They intermarried with the remaining Jews that were there, and uh, their religion became a mixture of mixing with Judaism. They, they wanted to make sure they got the God of the land right so that they could you know, have his blessing, but they brought with them their foreign gods, and so there was syncretism a mixture of true and false religion, which, of course, the final product is false. Uh, When the exiles from the southern kingdom returned from Babylon and tried to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans approached them and said, we'll help you. But the Jews viewed them as enemies, foreign enemies, and that they would contaminate the process, and so they rejected their help. And then When Nehemiah came and tried to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, same thing happened. He resisted their help and viewed them as enemies. And, uh, of course, that fueled tension between them as well. Then in about 400 B.C., the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim to um, cement a center for their um, weird kind of worship. And in 128 B.C., there was a Jewish leader named John Hyrcanus, and he burned their temple on Mount Gerizim to the ground, which, of course, didn't exactly foster good relations between the two groups. So these things had been festering for all this time. In Jesus' day, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as both religious and biological half-breeds. They were not part of the chosen 
people. And so there's this fierce tension between these groups that you have to understand to get this story right. Now, the normal time for women to go and draw water would have been either early morning or late in the afternoon in the cool of the day because, as you know, carrying a water pot is not a, an easy task. And they would have gathered there at the well and exchanged gossip and talk and caught up with one another and so on. It was a social spot to gather as well as a place to get the water. Uh, this woman comes at noon, and we don't know for sure why, but we're probably not reading too much into the text to say uh, she was shunned by the other women of the village because of her immoral lifestyle, and she probably wanted to avoid them and be alone. To her surprise, however, she comes to the well, and here is this Jewish stranger, and of all things, he asks her for a drink of water. <clears throat> that would have been unthinkable. Um, I don't know if you've ever, if you were ever in the South before um, the Civil Rights Movement, they had separate drinking fountains that would say whites and coloreds, meaning blacks, and you would not mix those. You know, there were severe social repercussions if you did. It would be Jesus asking her for a drink <clears throat> from her container. He didn't have a canteen to fill. Would have been like a white man in the South going up to a black woman and saying, can I have a sip from your canteen? It would have been unthinkable. Also, uh, it was not culturally uh, acceptable for a Jewish man to speak to a woman, not, not his wife, in public and especially for a rabbi. So here you have a situation where Jesus, recognized as a rabbi by most, is speaking to a woman, and she is a Samaritan woman. And uh, not only that, he is asking her about spiritual things and directing the conversation in that direction. The rabbis in Israel would not have taught a Jewish woman. They would have thought they, they are not worthy to learn the law. So here's Jesus bringing up spiritual things with not only a Samaritan woman, but a sinful Samaritan woman. It would have been off the charts culturally. And we need to understand that about Jesus. And as the story unfolds, it becomes obvious oh, this woman isn't seeking God. She isn't saying, you know, sir, you look like a Jewish rabbi, and I've been seeking the true God for many, many years, and I would love to know how to know Him. What must I do to be saved? There's none of that at all. She's just going about her daily work. Got to get water, going to get water, minding her own business. And of all things, this stranger approaches her, asks her for a drink, and then changes the subject to this spiritual topic. Um, I think that her guilt over her live-in boyfriend would have made her avoid the topic. Um, we don't know about the previous five husbands. They could have died, but because Jesus brings that up, I think it's likely there were divorces or maybe uh, they were just live-ins also. The word for husband can be translated men. You've had five men, and the one you have now is not your own. 
And so she wanted to avoid anything that would touch on that. And here we have Jesus seeking a sinner who is lost, who needs the living water. That's the only explanation for this story. She wasn't seeking him. He was seeking her. Now, there's a couple of applications for this. Number one, for those of us who have met Christ, if we want to be Christ-like, then we need to do what Jesus did. And that is seek unlikely sinners, in our minds, unlikely candidates for the gospel, and bring up spiritual topics with them. I'll confess, often I'll be in a situation and I'll see someone and I'm sizing them up outwardly and I'll go, not a chance, this person is interested in the gospel. I mean, look at him or her. You know, they're way out there. And so I don't make an effort to to bring up spiritual things. I don't know how God's at work in their heart. And this story tells us, I'm sure the disciples here would have said, what are you doing? You know, talking to this woman, a Samaritan woman. And uh, yet Jesus uh, approached her, and I believe, most commentators believe, she did come to faith. A second application, there may be someone here this morning, and maybe you have a notoriously sinful past, and perhaps even you have a notoriously sinful present, and you just happen to be here today. Here's the great news. Jesus is seeking people just like you to bring to himself. No one is excluded. Uh, Jesus said he came to seek and to save, not the good folks, but the lost. And if you're lost and you're alienated from Christ, you qualify. And Jesus is the one who saved the thief on the cross. He saved the chief of sinners who had persecuted the church. He saves this Samaritan woman who is on her sixth live-in. And he is seeking sinners to save. And I'll tell you how in just a moment. So the first lesson is that Jesus seeks sinners who aren't even seeking him. The second lesson is that then Jesus offers all sinners this gift of living water. And there are three things here to note. First of all, the living water that Jesus gives is a gift. It's not something you have to earn or qualify to receive. Uh, There's an emphasis on gift or give here. Notice John 4.10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then in verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will in him uh, become a well of water springing up to eternal life. So there's a strong emphasis here. We're talking gift. It's not a reward for service. It's not something you earn and qualify for. It's a gift. And I'll be honest, that is one of the most common errors spiritually across the board, around the world. I don't care whatever religion it may be. And even in some, in the so-called Christian religion, is the 
entrenched mindset, i got to earn it. Um, it's the official teaching, for example, of the Roman Catholic Church. And I, I am not at all here dumping on Catholic people. I'm, I'm trying to point out to you there is a distinct difference in the approach to salvation. Here's what the Catholic Church teaches. This is a statement from the Councils of Trent that are still valid today. They were devised to counter the Protestant Reformation. It says, If anyone says that by faith alone the impious, that means the ungodly, is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, let him be anathema. That means let him be damned. If you teach that you can simply receive God's salvation as a free gift, then they say you are to be damned because they want to add works. That is in contrast to, for example, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. I mean, you put in your 40 hours and you get your paycheck. You don't say, thank you so much for being so gracious and kind to me. You say, I earned that. He owes it to me. If he doesn't pay me, I'm going to take him to court. But then the verse goes on. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, not the righteous, not the one who's trying to be good. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Or in the same vein in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a familiar verse I hope to all of you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift, there's that word again, the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the gospel, the gospel means good news, the gospel is not good news if what it means is you need to do penance, you need to commit yourself to uh, changing your own life, you need to commit yourself to a lifetime of good works, and if you add enough, eventually the scale might tip, you don't know for sure, maybe it'll tip and someday God will let you into heaven. That isn't very good news. But it is wonderful news. If right where you sit, in spite of all of your sin and all of your guilt, you can just take the gift freely. And God justifies the sinner who has faith in Jesus. That is wonderful news. And that's the gospel. Now, maybe you're still thinking, yeah, but you don't know my past. I mean, I got so many sins that I would be just embarrassed if anyone knew about. Uh, I am not worthy of such a gift. Exactly. Nobody is. If you think you're worthy, you don't get it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God justifies us as a gift through His grace in Christ. And so the second lesson here is that no sinner is excluded from the offer of this gift. I mean... I think most Jews, including the disciples at this point, would have thought this woman is not a worthy candidate for salvation, Lord. Number one, she is a Samaritan, and that excludes her. And number two, she's a woman. 
two strikes against her. And number three, she's an immoral woman. Three strikes and she's out. Uh, come on, Jesus, let's move on. I mean, you know, you got only so much time. you got to have a strategic ministry. Let's pick people who are going to be more um, potential disciples and pay off. This woman, she, she's a waste of your time. But Jesus takes the time and He takes the initiative to talk to this woman about spiritual things and to offer her this living water. He did not exclude her from this gift. And it says to me, He does not exclude you either. No matter what your situation, no matter what your background, the gift is for you. You know, the ones who reject the gift often are not people like this sinful woman. It's people like the Pharisees. Good people. Moral people. And here's why. They don't want to be identified with this kind of riffraff. See, and if they accept the gift, and she accepts the gift, then they think, well, I'm on her level? Yeah. And that's the stumbling block. Is that good moral people don't want to admit, you know, I am just as sinful as she is. Different kind of sin, maybe. Pride rather than immorality. But it's all sin in God's sight. And yet the gift is freely offered to the notoriously sinful. And Jesus offered it to the self-righteous. It's just that the sinful often see, I need this. Whereas the self-righteous don't. But both do. And then this gift of living water that Jesus offers satisfies the thirsty soul both for time and eternity. Notice verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, Jesus is using this analogy of living water to picture salvation that the Holy Spirit gives to us. I think that's clear by comparing our text with John chapter 7 and verses 37 to 39 where Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds, But this he spoke of the Spirit. Living water, then, is the same thing as the new birth. As I said, it's just a different analogy for a different situation, but it is essential for life. Water in that desert climate, you had to have it or you would die in a very quick order. In fact, everywhere you have to have it. And, of course, in a hot climate, when you come on an oasis and there is a spring of water, it just, ah... You know, what a wonderful thing. Maybe you've hiked in the desert somewhere and come on these oases. Uh, we've hiked up in those uh, Indian canyons out of Palm Springs and there's these fabulous oases of streams of water out there in that hot desert. And it's so refreshing to have that happen. Um, living water, by the way, refers to water that comes from a spring or a fountain as opposed to a cistern. It's it's flowing and always there, always springing up. Now, Jews who were familiar with their Scripture 
knew that the Lord Himself is the fountain of living water. Now, the Samaritans, they only accepted the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. So this woman may not have known it, but all of John's Jewish readers would have known these verses. Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord rebukes His sinning people and says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, and then here's how the Lord describes Himself, the fountain of living waters. And they've done that, he says, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Or then later in Jeremiah 7.13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. So Jesus tells this woman that this water that He's going to give will become in this person a well of water springing up to eternal life. That little phrase, in Him, in verse 14, uh, in Him, shows that a relationship with God is inward and personal. In other words, Christianity is not primarily getting the rituals down right and getting the rules right and doing all of that stuff, but we're talking about a heart relationship that you have with the living God through the Spirit of God who dwells in you and gives you this new life, this living water. And the fact that it springs up continually points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a well inside of you that never runs dry. Now, granted, there are ebbs and flows in the Christian life. Sometimes are drier than other times. Sometimes are rich. But it's not like Arizona rivers that just run dry, you know. Uh, this thing flows when the Spirit of God is in your heart. Um, there is always this, uh, this refreshment, this life that God gives perpetually. Jesus says here, whoever drinks of the water that I give, give him will never thirst. And I think what he means is, when you taste of Christ, you're satisfied with Christ. When you drink of Christ, you realize he's rescued me from sin and condemnation. He's forgiven all my sins. He's given me eternal life and there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Uh, he has made me his child, and just as every father loves his children and protects them and, and uh, gives them what is good for them, so the Lord has us under his loving care. He's, he's given us, as Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's given, given us his word, which is like water to our soul. All of that says, you know, we're satisfied with Christ. Jesus does not mean, however, that your thirst is forever quenched in the sense that you, you stop longing for more of Him. Um, we hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus said in Matthew 5. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 42.1, you know, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, the living God. Or Psalm 63, verse 1, where he cries out, O God, You are my God. Uh, I shall seek You earnestly. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I thought John Calvin summed up both sides of this, the fact that we're satisfied and yet we're thirsty, when he said, uh, although we thirst throughout our whole life, yet it is certain that we have not received the Holy Spirit for a single day or for any short period, but as a perennial fountain which will never fail us. So that's the balance that we are satisfied and yet we still thirst for more and more of the Lord. So now we come to the bottom line, the, the question. And that is, how do you get this living water of salvation that Jesus freely offers to all? And uh, the answer is, to receive the gift of living water, Jesus says you must know who Jesus is and uh, what He offers, and then you must ask for it. Verse 10, Jesus answers and, answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, so you've got to know something about what it is he's offering, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you need to know who he is, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I think that Jesus was provoking her curiosity along three lines. Number one, what is this gift that he's offering? Number two, who is this stranger who's talking to me? And number three... Maybe I'm going to miss out if I don't ask. I better ask. And we'll look at her response next time. But to receive this gift then of God, you need to know what it is. And I've already touched on that. The living water is the salvation that uh, the Holy Spirit imparts to us. It is the Lord Himself who comes to dwell within us and to be that per perpetual fountain uh, renewing us. Uh, to Nicodemus, remember, Jesus spoke about being born of the Spirit. And then in John 7, as we saw at the Feast of the Tabernacles, He said, Come unto Me and drink. And John says He was talking about the Spirit. And so this living water is the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in us as believers and give us this new life, but also to sustain us day by day by day as we drink of Christ. And so he invites this sinful woman to ask him to give her this living water that will quench her spiritual thirst. And I think it's really important to understand, again, Christianity is a heart relationship with God. It's not that you sign up for all the rules and the rituals and get those down and then do your thing once a week. No, it is walking daily with the living God who comes to dwell within you when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And as I said, it is supremely important that you understand it's a gift. It's a free gift. It's not something you earn. So, to receive this gift of God, then, you must know who Jesus is. He says, if you knew who it is, who is saying to you, give me a drink? Um, and that underscores faith is not a blind leap in the dark where you close your eyes, you hope for the best, and off you go into the wild blue yonder. Faith in the Bible is always as good as its object, and its object is God. And God is trustworthy. If you've ever gone down to the airport to get on a plane and uh, you see a, a mechanic out there tying the wing on with bailing wire, 
you're, you're thinking, you know, I don't think this is the one I want to get on. It doesn't look real trustworthy. But if you saw it come in for a landing and it taxis up to the tarmac there and to your uh, terminal and uh, they're out servicing it and, uh, and the pilot looks competent and all of that, you know, you reasonably have a pretty good trust in it thinking this thing looks good. Well, our trust is in the living God who has revealed himself supremely in Jesus. Read the gospel accounts of Jesus. John writes these things so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might believe in him as you see who he is. And so uh, the story here isn't saying you've got to have a Ph.D. in theology, but you do need to have some basic understanding of who Jesus is. And this very story shows in the first place the fact that Jesus was tired and that he was hungry or thirsty, I should say, shows that he's human. Um, you know, he could have performed a miracle to quench his thirst. He didn't do that. In fact, the story never tells us if she gave him a drink. I, I have a hunch she did not. She got so excited, she leaves her water pot, runs back into the village to tell everyone about Jesus, and I think he's still sitting there thirsty. Maybe the disciples had to lower her, her uh, container into the well and get him a drink. I don't know. Uh, but it's a beautiful thing that the Lord is fully human. And that means he can sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, but one who has been tempted in all points as we and yet without sin. Um, it's beautiful, too, that Jesus put himself on her level. He didn't say, I've got my sanctified Jewish vessel here. Would you give me a drink in it? Please don't touch anything and contaminate it. He was willing to drink out of her vessel. He put himself right on the same level as her. Um, he didn't put her down as many Jewish men would have done. said, you're a woman, you're unworthy of learning about God. Jesus was human and he relates to us as a man, as fully human man. Tired, thirsty, and yet the other fact is that Jesus is able to give living water to thirsty sinners and that shows that he's God. Uh, he... The woman in verse 11 says, Sir, you don't have anything to draw with, and the well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Uh, even today, I understand, I've never been to Israel, but the, uh, the well there is over 100 feet deep to this day. So it could have even been deeper then. And Jesus has no container, and so how's he going to get the water out of there? And then she asks this um, question in verse 12 where she's challenging him. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Now, the irony John wants you to see is, uh, yeah, I think he is a lot greater than Jacob. And Jesus is probably the angel of God that wrestled with Jacob there when Jacob was about to meet his brother Esau. Um, so the answer to where he's going to get this living water is it's within his own nature as God to give salvation to every sinner who asks. And so we have to see as we come to Jesus, He is man, He is God, He is one person, and He is, of course, the Savior who can give living water to all. And then here's the beautiful part of the story, the, the bottom line. To receive this living water then, ask for it. <laughs> 
That's what Jesus said. If you'd known the gift of God and who it was who was telling you this, you would have asked and I would have given it to you. Now, to ask, you've got to admit, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I need what Jesus has to offer. But Jesus is very plain. If you come to Him as a thirsty sinner and say, Oh, Lord, I need what You have to give me. I need this living water that will quench my thirst forever. He promises, I'll give it. I'll give it. Now, the water that the world gives, Jesus said, you can drink of this well, Jacob's well, and you're going to be thirsty tomorrow and you've got to come back and drink. And you'll be thirsty the next day and you've got to come back and drink. And you can drink of all that the world has to offer you and you'll be thirsty again and again and again and again. But one drink from Jesus and your thirst is quenched. And all you have to do is ask. And so, have you asked? Have you asked for Jesus to give you the living water of eternal life? And if so, do you have the evidence within you? You're satisfied with Jesus. You don't have to seek after all the stuff the world is trying to lure us with. You've got Jesus to seek. And He satisfies your soul. And so, if you haven't asked, why don't you ask? Let's bow together.